Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Pim Fox, let's take a trip to Greece because it's beautiful there and it's gray and kind of rainy in New York. Uh, in particular, Greece is selling bonds. They're back. $3.5 billion of bonds. We're back. We're back. Right? Yeah, exactly. The first bond sale uh, since 2014, at least international uh, bond sale. And evidently, people really want to buy this stuff to get a better sense of why. Uh, let's bring in Simon Ballard, global credit strategist for Bloomberg. He is based in London. He has been buying Greek bonds all morning. Simon, why oh, has there been so much demand for this debt? Everyone back in the pool, as they say. <laughs> um, you know, this is this is the the first public bond issue from Greece since 2014. It is seen more importantly than the deal itself. It is seen as a lead into a continued ability to refinance itself going forward. So it's seen as a very very key uh, moment for the Greek economy, for the Greek finance ministry, uh, in terms of drawing a line under the bailout period. If you can do that, uh, there are still many questions, of course, in terms of the indebtedness of the uh, of the sovereign, um, and uh, you know wh- where it goes from here in terms of growth. But nevertheless, as you say, there's been a very solid response to the deal, which is looking like it's going to be three billion euros in size. Um, we have a book reported to be somewhere in the region of six and a half billion, so orders of six and a half billion for those three billion, and pricing that has been tightened from which looked fairly generous um, in the in the early stages down to um, a yield of of six and uh, sorry four four, four and. Five. Six. Four, yeah. four and five eighths. Yeah, four point uh, a little bit more than four point six percent. And this is tighter, I should say, than the uh, last offering of five year bonds from Greece in April 2014, uh, when that was priced with a nearly five percent coupon. I just have to Correct. wonder, you know, how much does this just demonstrate the risk on sentiment that is washing over the European Union? I mean, you could see the peripheral bonds uh, yields just absolutely plummeting relative to German and French yields. At what point does this become unsustainable? Well, that's a very, very good point. And I think, you know, today's deal would not be being done were it not for the demand for yield, the, the, you know, the, the, the insatiable hunt for yield among the investor base, if you wish. And as you know, those peripheral yields have been declining to Germany as, as investors have pushed themselves further down the, the quality curve within sovereigns, within corporates, within financials, um, as, we've, uh, as we've reported many times. Um, at what point does this become unsustainable? Well, the point at which it becomes unsustainable is probably when we get a more hawkish rhetoric coming from the Fed, when we start to talk about normalization of policy within the ECB, or at least the tapering of, of quantitative easing uh, more meaningfully within the, uh, within the ECB, and we move into a higher yield environment, at which point investors don't have to chase yield further and further down the quality curve. They can, in fact, you know, get their yield bogey. They can hit their yield target in something that's a little bit closer to home and with stronger fundamentals, perhaps. Simon, is it at all uh, uh, accurate that the buyers of this debt are in some way forced to buy it because they may be small and mid-sized banks that, in a sense, owe their survival to their associations with local governments and perhaps even the European Union? 
There will be. There will be a degree of uh, not benchmark weighting, but a degree of uh, you know having to buy, as you say, uh, from some of the smaller from some of the smaller banks. But I think a three billion deal such as this is is being bought with institutional money that is being bought on the basis of you know the long term sustainability, the optimis- optimism around long term sustainability of the of the Greek economy and continued Wait, hold, improvement. Whoa, 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 whoa! Hold on, Simon. I'm looking right now uh, at the function ECFC on the. <laughs> Bloomberg, and I'm looking at the unemployment rate of Greece. Uh, yes, it has gotten better. Now it is expected to be uh, 22.5% uh, down from 23.5% last year. These are incremental changes. That means still nearly a quarter of the population is unemployed, or at least uh, reported to be unemployed, with the yes. actual unemployment rate probably being a lot higher. We're still looking at a GDP uh, that is barely growing, and we have a huge hole of debt that they still need oh, to repay. If you, if, you <laughs> saw, if you saw the hands signals that Lisa Abramowitz is giving me right I'm now. This is why I'm on radio, so you no know, one has to right, see yeah, well, You would be yeah. drinking that Retsina wine and it wouldn't help, let me tell Toss you. Me, pour, me, pour me another glass. No, let's not, let's not get this out of context. Let's, this is nowhere near an investment grade credit. The fundamentals are still very weak. This is still a CAA2, single B minus, triple C rated, so very, very low quality, high yield issuer of which the fundamentals are still questionable. Yes, 22% unemployment. It's going to be probably near a 30% if you look at the youth unemployment, as we've discussed over you know, the last several years. But the fact is that they've managed to get the deal away for the first time since 2014. Um, it is seen as a window to future financing ability. And for that reason, they had to make sure this deal worked. They couldn't squeeze it too much. I am not sitting here and saying that this is the end and you know this is the beginning of some form of growth rally within sort of the, uh, the Greek economy. We've still got a 180, you know, 180% debt to GDP ratio. I think it's probably about 176 now, depending on where you look at the, uh, the numbers, but certainly a very high debt to GDP ratio within the country. But nevertheless, this is a positive step forward, albeit with myriad question marks around it. All right. Well, Simon, I'm just trying to get my head around the fact that, you know, if you were if, if you were the country, if you were Greece and you had this big debt load, would I really lend you any more money? Wouldn't that be like giving you the, you know, the gasoline to pour on the fire? Well, there is that. And that is that is the worry. I mean, some of the guys that we've spoken to this morning are sort of, yes, it's an interesting level of yield. But no, there's still the potential for, for restructuring again when we move into 2018. So you're using not... multisyllabic words to just describe the feeling of fear that you would Absolutely. get if you had to lend to someone like that. We've got to leave it there. But I want to thank you very much. Simon Ballard, he's uh, injecting a little bit of rationality into the situation. He's our global credit strategist for Bloomberg News, joining us from London. Well, I want to take a look at emerging markets credit. There has been a lot discussed about this asset class. We've seen an unprecedented amount of money flow in, uh, largely through indexed funds. And that has led a lot of people to wonder, has this asset class gone too far too fast? With us to let us know what he thinks is Stephen O, Global Head of Credit and Fixed Income at Pinebridge Investments. Pinebridge manages uh, more than $80 billion globally and is based in Los Angeles. Stephen, Thank you so much for joining us. So what's your take? I mean, there has been a lot of concern recently kind of highlighted about the uh, ongoing rally within emerging markets credit. 
I, I think emerging markets, and thanks for having me as well, but uh, emerging markets is really following the broad trend across all risk and credit markets currently, where there is substantial demand across the board, given the low yield environment that we're operating in, with specifically within emerging markets itself. While there is some concern that perhaps there is too much money flowing in and valuations are getting uh, relatively tight and some would argue in spots overvalued. Uh, the underpinning longer-term outlook is that the fundamentals of emerging markets are on the uptrend and, and positive, and it supports an environment of somewhat overvaluation. Although if fund flows continues to come in, uh, there is the risk, of course, that we could become uh, very overvalued sometime in the near future. Stephen, I'm wondering if you could focus your attention on China and just explain to people how you physically buy Chinese debt. Are there lots of buyers? Are there lots of sellers? Is it a big liquid market? How do you know what to buy? You know, and, and that's a great question. And within China, there's a variety of different types of debts to, uh, per to purchase. Uh, within the areas that we like to look at, you know, it's primarily on the corporate side. There are a significant amount of uh, corporate issuers uh, from China or have Chinese exposure that are uh, actively issuing debt out in the marketplace overall. And, and I think it's a situation where rather than buying China, uh, the theme in emerging markets overall is selecting the right bonds, the right companies, the right countries, because right. unlike the past, where there was a lot of beta uh, exposure, I think what we see is dispersion that's taking place of good performers versus uh, poor performers, and being selective is the key to how you purchase debt, not only in China, but uh, across all of emerging markets. Okay, so let's talk about where you think there still is value and where you think uh, some of the securities have gotten uh, completely overvalued at this point. Sure. Uh, you know, starting off from a broad standpoint, we do think that given that valuations are stretched uh, generally across the board, that taking a little bit of a defensive bias is the right approach. So what that means is uh, favoring the higher quality investment grade where you're getting paid less. But on a risk-adjusted basis, we think that's a better place to be on versus the uh, below investment grade and high yield component. So wait, but are you talking sovereign or are you talking corporate at this point? Uh, I'm talking primarily on the corporate side, okay. but, it, but it really relates to sovereign as well, frankly, but more so on the corporate side. And local currency or hard currency? You, you know, we like aspects of local currency, but again, uh, I think you have to be careful uh, because we like specific countries in local currency. We like Indonesia. We like Peru. Uh, as opposed to, you know, blindly saying we like local currency overall. And, and the reason why we ha do have a favorable outlook on many parts of local currency is the fact that, you know, many countries are shifting uh, their policy mix uh, and their macro uh, approach toward having come out of a highly inflationary environment where they were aggressively raising interest rates uh, to defend the currency to an environment of more uh, declining uh, inflationary expectations, as well as policies that will either maintain a stable rate or perhaps even in some cases reducing interest rates, which is very supportive of debt instruments. But, uh, Stephen, how, how do you reassure investors that, number one, the collateral that would be offered for any of these corporate bonds is actually good and gettable, meaning you could actually access it? And isn't there a disadvantage in many emerging markets because it, for example, in China, if you're going to go to court, chances are you're going to be there for a long time and then eventually lose. I, I, 
think it's fair to say that if you're evaluating the potential default outcomes, uh, you're in a bad situation. Uh, you don't want to go there. The outcome is not particularly you know, forecastable per se. Uh, and so the key in emerging market investing is rather than relying on the collateral and the bankruptcy default loss risk in the way that you would with, you know, U.S. bank debt or even high-yield bonds, uh, you're looking to invest in companies that will not ever get into those situations and businesses uh, that will continue to sh- show resilient cash flow characteristics. Okay, so Stephen, where do you think is the most overvalued asset? in emerging markets debt right now? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say in pockets of high-yield uh, corporate credit where you have spreads uh, across many parts of the corporate credit landscape where the yield that you're getting is right on top of developed market. And, and so you're not getting a risk premium. And even though the fundamentals, as I mentioned, are looking more attractive uh, longer term for emerging market areas, there is absolutely incremental risk that investors need to get paid for. And then there are many pockets where you're simply not getting paid for that right now, particularly in the high yield segment. Any any countries in particular? And are we talking hard currency or local at this point? Uh, primarily hard currency uh, overall. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the way we think about overvaluation isn't necessarily on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis. And so we tend to uh, be a bit more cautious of areas where everyone thinks they're great investments and, right. and more money is chasing those. And, and conversely, when no one wants to you know, touch a situation because perhaps they think the risk is too high, you know, oftentimes, even though the risk may be high, uh, investors tend to overshoot in right. those circumstances. So let's talk ETFs, because there's been a, a huge focus on the incredible amount of money that's flowed into emerging markets its debt through ETFs, and this raises a liquidity concern. In other words, the shares of ETFs are liquid, the underlying not so much. What happens if you get an exodus? How concerned are you? The ETFs, as well as retail fund flows, does create a liquidity concern because even though emerging markets is a very large market, you know, it is a market where uh, in times of stress, it's very difficult to execute uh, on selling bonds. Uh, and, and so with the ETF uh, growth, there is a greater level of risk that if everyone heads for the exit doors at the same time, you could get price gaps overall. But offsetting some of that and what's less talked about is technicals in emerging market debt is actually improving because there is a substantial amount of institutional money that has come into the marketplace, which is much more difficult to track because unlike ETFs, there is no easy scorecard where you can see the fund flows on a daily or weekly basis. But we do see the uh, institutional flows coming in, uh, both directly from the investors that we talk to and and from our competitors, as, as well as our uh, execution counterparties overall. And that represents a very stable source of demand. We've got to leave it there. Stephen Oh, thank you very much. Global Head of Credit and Fixed Income, Pine Bridge Investments, helping to manage more than $80 billion.
Shares of McDonald's are up more than 3.5% after reporting results that exceeded analyst estimates. Here to tell us more is Michael Halen. He is our expert when it comes to the restaurant and food industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. McDelivery, $1 soft drinks, and oh yes, the Rolo McFlurry with chocolate and caramel. Is this what's really making it happen for McDonald's? That's a big that's a big part of this quarter. Um, in there also is these uh, new signature crafted burgers, which are in you know an improvement in the quality. Um, but, delivery is that really a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. Um, you know, we'll get the, to Mick delivery in a, in, a, in a second. Go ahead. What what happened here? But I, I sound like a broken record, but it's a lot of things for for to change the momentum at a company this large. You know, it takes a lot of things, and um, they've been aggressive from the beginning. Easterbrook has been very aggressive, whether it's um, with the refranchising initiatives, with the um, restructuring of the company, uh, making sure the restaurant operations are as good as they need to be. Uh, New stores and and, and and getting rid of as many as possible because they want to go to a, an ownership light model. They don't necessarily well, yeah, so want to own the stores. Yeah, so they they've been aggressively um, refranchising, and and they're going to hit their four thousand uh, store goal. Uh, a year uh, earlier than expected when Hong Kong and, Ch- and uh, China are refranchised next quarter. So uh, they've been aggressive with all of these things, including, you know, in the restaurants with the the service and then also improving the technology and the food and all those other good things. So, uh, you know, how much of the growth is coming from overseas and how much of the changes can be implemented more quickly uh, because of its aggressive expansion in some of these areas so what's interesting is that the results were very strong all over the world you know they've posted strong same source sales gains and traffic increases in every single one of their segments across the globe for the first time since 2008 so you know the strength is broad-based um which you know obviously is is extremely positive uh for the outlook moving forward but um so it's kind of interesting internationally um, they have very strong operators that can roll out a lot of the technology and spend money to grow grow the system, um, which will be key. Hey, Michael, uh, just let's go to some detail. You say uh, cheaper drinks, right? Less expensive drinks. I already noted the what? $1 soda. And I think it's any size, right? $1. Yeah. And coffee. then, okay, coffee, right? All day breakfast. That's Is that doing well? Yeah. All day breakfast was one of the first things that they adopted. And there was a lot of pushback from franchisees because there's questions about, you know, is the kitchen configured right? Do we have the, the right equipment? We're going to have to spend money. We're not making a lot of money right now. So uh, all of those things were kind of caused some pushback, but that really got the ball rolling here. There's and no doubt still, about it. And is it still accelerating? Uh, they haven't given too much color on that in particular. Um, but it's just, like I said, from the beginning, it's like part of the the puzzle, you know. Um, but the one and $2 drinks is interesting because, um, you know, that could hurt Sonic. Sonic sells more than 30% of, uh, you know, right. more than 30% of their sales are in beverages. Mm-hmm. And that's very high. That's like And it gets people in the door. It increases higher. that traffic. Yeah. So, you know, McDonald's could be taking some share from them. Another one that maybe that may feel a little bit, a bit of pain here could be Burger King. Right, because um, their same source sales trends were, were pretty strong until the third quarter of last year, and that's when McDonald's really started to pick up. So, being number two in the U.S., having a lot of overlap is probably not a good place to be right now for Burger King. You know what Lisa wants to know? She wants to know what what is going to happen to those Chipotle stores. Are they going to all turn into McDonald's? 
<laughs> what is going on with Chipotle? Or like a breakfast burrito. I mean, see, I don't see why go. they haven't done a breakfast burrito. I want a breakfast burrito like now. Everyone loves breakfast burritos, don't they? I mean, I, I got to get them in the door. What's go, what's, so it, what's going on here? Yeah, at Chipotle, at give us the preview. And does it matter, right? Because it's going to be backward looking anyway. And this whole scan, like, issue with health and sickness and you, all that. You just jazz. nailed it. You yeah. just nailed it. All right, like, so go. So um, in, in, from where I sat, um, the street was very negative and there was a lot of um, dropping of numbers on the second quarter. Mid-quarter, I think they kind of looked into some um, margin guidance a little too closely. You know, they, they slightly lowered margin guidance, like 10, 20 basis points. And then everyone came out of the work saying, Their sales are going to go down. This means there's going to be deleveraging. It's not going to be as good as we thought. So I thought it was just kind of a chance for a lot of sell-side analysts to kind of kick them when they were down. Everybody's got a sell rating on it. They you know, see an opportunity, kick them, they do it. Um, so I thought it was actually setting up for a good quarter that the expectations have been lowered to a point where they may have a decent beat. But like you said, it's, it's not even going to matter. What's really going to, you know, people want to hear what they're saying about this outbreak. Everyone wants the to neurovirus know. In the neurovirus in the Virginia yeah. store, I believe. Yes, exactly. But it wasn't just that, right? There were some other issues too. And so people are starting to wonder whether, again, the supply chain or whether there's something that is unable to uh catch these viruses before yeah so it's, it's tough because els has kind of set himself up for some um backlash because he went out and said last year that we're going to be the safest restaurant you can eat at but that's impossible because they have sneeze guards so yeah. anyone you know somebody an employee can be sick and not know it or somebody could sneeze over the glass into your uh, let's not go there okay <laughs> and you're talking steve els is the the chairman the the ceo and the founder of, of chipotle All right, let, let's you know i i so we started off i said you know i'm kind of hungry it's getting towards anymore. lunch please please don't talk about anything too appetizing you did it I'm you absolutely you did I'm it helping you out. yeah you're the dieter um uh all right we're going to be looking for those results just after the uh the close of trading today for chipotle uh Domino's. What's going on in the pizza market? So pizza market in terms of sales is great. And Domino's is continuing to take share. Their two-year trends and sales are off the charts. But, um, you know, that stock is up, was up over $200 from, you know, maybe $2.50 during the depths of the depression, uh, the recession, I'm sorry. And uh, so it's been a great run. There's very high expectations baked in. And, and it's now, ha, so to speak. But also it's been like a tech company, right? They've gotten yes. really good at delivery and uh, online. Line. Yeah, and they and they you know they're the best in class in technology, well, and that's what McDonald's is is trying to become, and yeah. they're catching up pretty fast. But Domino's is way ahead of everyone. I would say Domino's and Panera are one and two. Um, but the thing is, it's not the sales, it's not the technology. The issues are some of uh, the restaurant margin issues, like labor insurance costs were way up. Also, they have a high class problem of having to to. Uh, build more distribution centers because sales grew so much, uh, it's going to cost CapEx. So the street's used to getting, you know, a few hundred million dollars worth of share buybacks every year. And, and that, those are going to have to Is that why slow. DPZ is down? It's down eight and a half percent today. Yeah, that's, those are all a, a big part of it. I would say also international slowed a bit, only increased about two and a half percent same source sales. So. Real quick, who is Domino stealing share from? Uh, pizza Hut and Mama Pop, Mom and Pops, regional uh, pizza joints too. Michael Halen, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Michael Halen is our senior restaurant an analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's going to go have pizza. I was about to say, yeah. we can usually find him if we go downstairs and uh, survey the uh, local restaurants.
Well, Michael Kors Holdings agreed to buy Jimmy Choo for about $1.2 billion. It's uh, combining handbags with shoes. I guess that's got the uh, retail landscape well covered. Sarah Halzak is uh, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering retail. And Sarah, thank you for being with us. Why is, uh, why is Michael Kors doing this? Sure. So Michael Kors is on a mission to be an international luxury conglomerate. It wants to compete more with the likes of an LVMH or a Caring over in Europe. And it's watching what its competitor Coach is doing on this front. It just bought Cape Spade for $2.4 billion. So it wants to be a more diversified company. And Jimmy Choo looks like a good target. So Michael Kors shares are uh, down nearly a percent. There is some talk, including by our Gadfly columnist uh, colleagues, that perhaps Michael Kors overpaid for Jimmy Choo's in their uh, ambition to become something more like an LVMH. What's your take on that? Yeah, so they did pay uh, like an 18% premium on yesterday's share price, and that is a little bit high. But I think what it's going to come down to is the execution, right? So one thing that they said today was that they really plan to stick with this idea of opening just 10 stores a year in the Jimmy Choo brand. And that's probably an encouraging sign, given that one of the things that has really felt cores in the last couple of years is just this breakneck pace of store openings. They had 400 stores in 2013, now up to 960 stores, and they're having a pull back that throttle. So it's an encouraging sign that they plan to pump the brakes with Jimmy Choo and do a more realistic pace and not get overstored. I think the thing that gives me pause is that they said they plan to double sales to $1 billion by 2020, and it's hard to see how they're going to be able to pull that off. Well, and not just uh, be able to pull it off, but how they continue to maintain the sheen around Jimmy Choo's and the sex in the city allure and the high-end nature of the shoes while also uh, increasing the volume of sales to such a degree where they become more commonplace. I would think that to do that, they would have to lower prices or at least offer uh, something that is at a lower price point. Yeah, that's a good possibility. And I agree that that would be sort of concerning for them because we saw what happened with Michael Kors and Coach when they did the same thing, right? Their product lost cachet when it became too widespread and they were selling too many things at entry-level price points. Um, Some of the things that the executives said today that might suggest they have an alternative path to getting to that billion dollars. Um, So they kept saying that the men's shoes line was a hidden jewel. Um, That was their wording. And so perhaps if they can wring more growth out of that, um, they could do that without sort of chipping away at that sex in the city cachet. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is that um, they only get about 30 percent of their revenue from wholesale. And so they could perhaps do some more in department stores without tripping away at cachet. Is there any way that Michael Kors as a brand is done? Is that possible? I mean, because this was a stock that was, you know, this was like a six, a $55 stock. And now we're trading at 34 and a half. The, the jewel of men's shoe wear. Well, space. yeah, I mean, really, I mean, it, it, you know, it's like, okay, if, if, it's, if Jimmy Choo is such a great business, then why would they sell it, first of all? And second, does Michael Kors have any experience actually making this kind of acquisition work? it would be sold, uh, Jab Holdings, who is the majority stakeholder, is really trying to get in this posture of focusing more on food and beverage. That's why they purchased Panera earlier this year. Um, and as, in terms of cores, no, you're right. They don't have a track record of pulling off an acquisition like this. And a lot of it may come down to you know how they're able to do in less penetrated markets like Asia Pacific. Uh, Jimmy Choo doesn't have a big presence over there. And if they can get that right, then cores can really capitalize on that.
Can we get a sense of who else was in the running to buy Jimmy Choo's? Because I assume that uh, there was a competitor, otherwise they wouldn't have paid such a high price. I'm not quite sure, um, but I'm sure there's there's a case to be made that an LVMH or a Caring or a Richemont could have looked at it, and that might have been better for Jimmy Choo in some way, right? Because perhaps um, by being tied up with those um, really premium, high-end luxury brands, as opposed to the core's accessible luxury brand, that could have been uh, good for their reputation. Now, Jimmy Choo, uh, as you said, is a uh, uh, perhaps not as uh, well distributed in Asia, yet it was founded by uh, a Malaysian based in the UK, correct? Yes, that's right. Um, and so, and that's still a very promising marketplace for them. And uh, we'll see, you know, what core is a strategy. I think they have an investor day coming up in August, and we'll kind of see when they articulate a clearer strategy for penetration there, um, if it's something that seems to make sense. You know, I got to say, on the broader level, are you expecting, when you talk to your sources, are you expecting a lot more uh, M&A activity among retailers, or do you think that it's going to slow just due to the high valuations right now? I think they're all hungry for more of it. And so I think we can expect to see more of these kinds of tie-ups. Uh, coaching cores really both see this as their strategy for competing going forward. Um, and so I think we should keep an eye out for more. Is uh, Tamara Mellon uh, at all involved in the company anymore? No. Not to my knowledge, Yeah, no. okay. All right, well, that's very... In- yeah. Asked and answered. <laughs> no, no, I mean, because uh, uh, Tamara Mellon, who was the accessories uh, editor at Vogue, I believe was really responsible for turning this into such a, a, a huge global brand, Jimmy Choo. Well, and I yeah. think Sex and the City really did have also, I well, mean, just the whole thing. It was like, get my Jimmy Choo's on and go out in New York City. Sarah Halzak, thank you so much for joining us. She is our new Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. She is fabulous. Welcome. She comes from the Washington Post and she writes uh, great stuff. Uh, Sarah Halzak, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.